All right, let's look now at Luke chapter 8. And while you're uh, turning there, I want to tell you uh, something happened to me. Uh, and I don't know about you, but perhaps you are a little bit like me. Uh, anybody suffering a little bit of just COVID fatigue? <laughs> anybody notice that folks seem to be a little grouchier? I mean, let's just get real, okay? And uh, it does wear on us. We understand that. It's, it's challenging. And we're all susceptible. And the man standing in front of you this morning certainly one of those. And so I was recently in my car, and I was just kind of, well, having a nice pastoral pity party about a few things. <laughs> not really encouraged in my faith. And then I noticed, I uh, hadn't noticed it, there was a book in the passenger seat of the car. Uh, and so I, I, I saw it and I thought, you know, I haven't, haven't actually read that book. And so I thought, I'm going to do that. So I pulled over under a nice shade tree, had a warm cup of the nectar of heaven. <laughs> you know the brand. Not Starbucks. Okay. And I started reading this book. I had actually not read before and I was amazed that the first chapter ministered to me. And one reason I was so amazed is because I wrote the book. <laughs> I actually hadn't read it, you know. <laughs> Edited it, <laughs> along with my dear friend, Lisa. But I read the first chapter, and I was amazed that my own words encouraged me. <laughs> but you know why? Because uh, beneath those words, uh, the Word of God. Encouragement in the Word of God. And so, uh, this book which is available outside, I want you to know, maybe in the lobby. It's available, but what is always available is the peace of the Lord. Amen. The peace of the Lord, always available because he is the Prince of Peace. And the first chapter of the book was called The Prince at Peace. And some of you may remember that's actually a message that I brought here uh, back in late March as we were doing this series on Corona Victus, overcoming the virus of fear. But now we're working through another gospel, the gospel of Luke, and we come to the same account, not the same passage, but the same account in the gospel of Luke. And I thought, well, you know, Maybe we ought to skip it because I covered it just a few months ago. And then I thought, well, like they remember anything I covered a few months ago. And then I also know I thought, well, it is in God's Word not one time, not twice, three times. Evidently, we need to be reminded of it many, many times. 
And so we're going to do that today. I want you to see here as we turn to Luke chapter number 8. And we're talking about the king of storms. The king of storms. He is the prince at peace in this storm. But he is showing himself that he is the king of storms. Now, we're talking about kingdom authority. That's what this section of Luke is all about. But the reason we have kingdom authority is because we have a king who has authority. And his word has authority. And these last chapters are a bit about the power of the word of the king. The word of the king is powerful. And the whole passage in chapter 7 and following has been about, in chapter 8, how we listen to that word, how we hear that word. And the Lord is committed to all of us who are his followers. Not that we'll just hear the word, but we'll actually listen to the word. And there's a difference, isn't there, between hearing the word and listening to the voice of the king. And he takes us through storms so we may listen to his voice, know his voice like never before. Now this is a brief few verses that Damon read to us earlier. But notice it is filled with contrast. The whole story is about a contrast between Jesus and his disciples and how they are contrasted by this storm. So notice these contrasts, if you would. First of all, notice the contrast between Jesus' direction and the disciples' obedience. Jesus' direction and the disciples' obedience. Notice, if you will, here, verse 22. One day, he got them into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. Now, notice, Jesus directed his disciples. He directed, and they obeyed. And that's as it should be. He gives directions, we follow his directions. This was absolutely right, but here's what we need to notice. In doing right, everything seemed to go wrong. In doing right, everything seemed to go absolutely wrong. In fact, this whole story about this storm centers around the fact that these disciples are not in disobedience. They're not going into this storm because they're out of God's will. They're going into the storm because they're in God's will. You see, we get the idea that we're only going to experience storms out of the will of God. And my dear friend, listen carefully. You and I will experience storms because we're in the will of God. Amen. We're in the will of God. Now why is that? 
Because Jesus knows we need a storm now and then. You say, well, I didn't hear that on television. No, you probably won't hear that on television. And from a lot of television evangelists. Why is that? Because there's no money in it. But it's still the truth. Jesus knows when we need a storm. Even his most faithful disciples need a storm now and then. What did the Apostle Paul said? He say, said in Philippians chapter 4, I have learned to be in plenty and I have learned to be in need so that I might learn in whatever state I am there to be content. But he had to learn it. He didn't get all that when he got zapped on the road to Damascus. He had to learn some things. And part of his learning was to be in need. So that he might learn he didn't have a need that Jesus couldn't meet. Sometimes we may be in that storm... And I don't know if you're like me, but you lift your eyes to heaven in the midst of the storm. It's like maybe you feel like saying or maybe you actually say, really? <laughs> Is this necessary, Lord? Is this necessary? And sometimes the answer is it's absolutely necessary. Peter found out who was in this boat that it's necessary to go through some storms. And he told the disciples, then he told us still this day, do not be surprised at the fiery trial that you may go through. As if something strange were happening to you. But recognize we were called to this. We were called to follow his example and my friend, the example of the Lord Jesus Christ was not a primrose path. It was a thorn-crowned path at times. We learn from Him. Don't be surprised. So we see here this contrast. On this journey, Jesus gives directions. They follow His directions. But now here's the second contrast. Jesus takes the disciples on this journey. They have their journey, but Jesus has set the itinerary. He has set the itinerary. Look at verse 22 again. He said, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep and a windstorm came down on the lake. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to uh, Israel. I hope that everyone can go someday. If you don't visit it in this life, I uh, hope to see you there in the millennium. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but there is, to me, so there's no region I've ever seen more beautiful to me than northern Israel. Maybe it's because it's so untouched, it's so undeveloped, it, it looks so much, no doubt, like it did in Jesus' day. 
And when you travel around the Sea of Galilee and you look down upon that beautiful lake from the surrounding hills, it is breathtaking. I've had the privilege to get up early in the morning, go down to the shore of the Sea of Galilee and watch the sunrise come up. Amazing moment. With some here even in this auditorium a few years ago. <laughs> it was Sunday and we had the greatest church service you could imagine floating on the Sea of Galilee. What a moment that was. It is an area that is serene in its beauty, but friends, listen to me, that can all suddenly change. That can all suddenly change. Because, listen, the Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level. It's 700 feet below sea level, it's, it's only five miles wide at the widest place. It's 13 miles long at the longest section. And it's surrounded by these high plateaus. Very, very similar if you go west from Knoxville. You go up the plateau. It's like that. You go up these plateaus that surround the Sea of Galilee. And then beyond the plateaus are mountains, and the, some of those mountains in Lebanon and Syria reach over 8,000 feet in height. So what happens? On occasion, because of the change in the atmospheric conditions, there will be winds that will come down the ravines, down the sides of those mountains, down the ravines of those streams running down from the mountains, across the plateau and down into that lake, and it becomes like a boiling cauldron. And it happened like that. Just a wind tunnel effect. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus took his disciples across this lake. It was a placid lake. And then in a moment of time, it became a boiling cauldron. Now, remember, this is on Jesus' itinerary. Uh, none of the disciples had planned this moment. But Jesus had planned it. It's on his itinerary. It's a dreadful storm. Even the fishermen who are on the boat, who have been on this lake all their lives, have never experienced anything like it. As a matter of fact, Matthew, in his account, to describe it, he calls this storm and its effect on the lake, he calls it a seismos. Seismos. We get our word seismograph from that. Why? Because seismos means earthquake. A quaking. It was like suddenly this placid lake was shaken by an earthquake. And this boat may be 20 or 22 feet long. goes down into the churning water, down, 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 surrounded over the tops, waves who knows how high, 
turning a dark green, and then like a slingshot to be shot up into the sky, darkened, only brightened by lightning. Foaming all around. Terrifying. Terrifying. And guess what? Jesus planned this. He planned it. He knew it was going to happen. So, perhaps even harder to understand than Jesus planning this itinerary, maybe even harder, is His response to the storm. His response to the storm. Now compare the response of the disciples to the storm and the response of Jesus to the storm. Just a little bit different. Look at verse 23. Verse 23 says this. That Jesus was at peace and his disciples were in a panic. Verse 23. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake and they were filling with water and they were in danger. Now notice, Jesus is sound asleep. Now what do we see here? What do we learn about Jesus in this? We learn that He is perfectly human in this regard. He is absolutely exhausted. He has had no rest for days. He has been teaching. He has been healing. He has been surrounded by people. He's not been able to probably even eat the way he should be eating and he is just exhausted. Here we see his complete humanity. Jesus was exhausted. You ever felt completely drained and exhausted? So is Jesus. But in his exhaustion, (laughs) he is a perfect example. Notice this. He is the prince of peace. Yes, he's the prince that brings peace. But notice, he's the prince at peace. He's the prince at peace. Because in the midst of his physical and emotional exhaustion, Jesus was physically exhausted. He was emotionally exhausted, but he was resting in his Father's care and he had emotional and spiritual peace. To be exhausted physically and emotionally doesn't have to mean that you're exhausted spiritually. He was resting asleep in his father's care. Now, while Jesus is snoozing in the storm, his disciples are losing to the storm. (laughs) They are losing to the storm and they are losing it. They're losing to the storm. Why? Listen carefully. Their work isn't working. Their efforts aren't effective. 
Their plans are not panning out, no matter how much they're panning out. It's not panning out the way they planned. Their work is not working. Their efforts are not effective. Their plans are not panning out. Anybody ever been there? If you're not there yet, just wait. The Lord brought His 12 disciples into a storm where their work would not be up to the task Their efforts would not be effective. They couldn't plan their way or pan their way out of it. Jesus brought them to this. Just like so many of us so often, what happens when our plan, our plan, stops working? (laughs) Well, we work ourselves into a panic. What am I going to do because nothing I do is working? You see, the crisis moment has arrived for these disciples. Some of them are experts in this kind of thing. Storms on the Sea of Galilee. But they're not up to this. They're not up to this. The crisis moment has arrived. But friends, listen carefully. It's in the crisis moment that we really get to know our Christ. He's the Christ for every crisis. And so now notice the contrast. Notice the disciples' panic and Jesus' power. (laughs) The disciples' panic compared to Jesus' power. Verse 24 And they went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves. And they ceased. And there was a calm. Now notice here. It's very important. All fear is not wrong. And so I want to make sure that we, sitting here nice and secure in this auditorium, some sitting nice and secure and comfortable in their lazy boy, maybe, or couch, and me standing here nice and secure on these big size, none of your business feet, We're very secure. And it's very easy for us to say, well, what's wrong with these disciples? That's easy when you're not in the boat. (laughs) And you're not overwhelmed. We're, We're very easy to pass judgment. But friend, listen, all fear is not wrong. How do we know that? Because the Bible tells us our... Our Lord Jesus was afraid. It says a father heard him because of his fear. Jesus was new fear. He knew fear we'll never imagine. In the Garden of Gethsemane, you will never know the fear that Jesus experienced there. 
It's not a sin to have fear. Some storms cause fear. And there are no doubt people right here in this room, people watching right now, you're in a storm and you're really afraid. Really afraid. Jesus understands. Jesus understands. You see, sometimes crying out to Jesus is a cry of faith. You read the book of Psalms that somehow, sometimes teach us to pray, don't they? And we hear David cry out in deep fear. As I said, even our Lord Jesus cried out in fear. But what is going on here is something else. This is a fear, but listen carefully. This is a different kind of fear. What the disciples are expressing is a faithless fear. It is not wrong to be afraid, but faithless fear is always wrong. You see, this kind of fear is really an accusatory fear. It's when we're afraid and we cry out to God, but we don't cry out in help, we cry out in accusation. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what Mark tells us in this account, that they cried out to Jesus, Master, don't you care if we're dying here? Does it mean nothing to you that we're about to die? Luke here, to emphasize it, he puts it what they say in the present tense. Listen carefully. It is not, Master, we may die here. Master, it's possible we may die here. It's present tense. Master, we are dying. We are perishing. And Jesus was startled away. A storm couldn't awake him from this nap, but his disciples knew how to wake him up by their cries of fear and accusatory fear. Jesus awakened. He immediately perceived the situation. And notice what? He did nothing. Jesus awakened and he did nothing, but he said something. Oh yeah, he said something. It says he rebuked. He rebuked the wind and the waves. That's very interesting. He rebuked the wind and the waves. The times that that word is used to describe Jesus in the Gospels is almost invariably used... When he is speaking to demonic powers. He rebuked the wind and the waves. Many Bible teachers think that that's an insight 
that this storm, like no other, that came out of nowhere, was actually as a result of a satanic attack upon Jesus and his disciples. And so Jesus used that type of response. He rebuked the wind and the waves just like he rebuked the demonic spirits. Mark tells us what he said. Luke doesn't tell us what he said. Luke just says he rebuked the wind and the waves. Mark tells us what he said. He said, be still. You know what literally that is? Be still? Literally, it is be muzzled. Or we might say today, hush up. (laughs) Some of us might be a little more impolite. Shut up. That's exactly what Jesus did. He stood up, and even if it was Satan bringing this attack on he and his disciples, all it took was one word from Jesus, one statement, hush up. Boom. Full stop. No, not a, not a slowdown, not, a, not a, a, a churning all the way to the shore. No, full stop. It ceased. The word here, that's the emphasis here. It ceased completely just at his word. My friend, I want you to know, <laughs> Jesus is master and commander. No matter what Russell Crowe thinks. Crow thing. Jesus is master and commander. He is the master of the ship and he's the commander of the waves and the wind and the sails. He is master and commander. This week, just a couple of days ago, actually, uh, one of the men in men's group that I'm involved with on Tuesday texted something. It was really encouraging. And... We do that during the week, text each other good words from Scripture, good thoughts from some Christian leaders, and sometimes some really goofy jokes. (laughs) (laughs) But here is what my brother David texted to us from Dr. Tony Evans, pastor, leader, author, from Oak Hill Bible Church in Dallas, Texas, he said this, quote, It often takes the darkness of the storm to show us the light of God's presence and power. <laughs> Isn't that good? The only way that could be better if, is if I had said that. Okay, that... <laughs> it often takes the darkness of the storm to show us the light of God's presence and power. And that is the lesson here, friends. This is the lesson. And Jesus made sure the disciples learned this lesson, and we need to learn this lesson. And it's in the final contrast. I want you to see the final contrast. It's this contrast, Jesus' question and the disciples' revelation. Jesus' question and the disciples' revelation. There are two questions in verse 25. Verse 25, he said to them, where is your faith? 
And they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? Now notice two questions here. Jesus asked a question and then the disciples ask a question. Now you need to know when Jesus asks a question, listen carefully, this is important to you in your Bible study, when the God or Jesus asks a question, it's not because either one of them needs information. When the Lord asks a question, it's not because He needs information, it's because He wants to give illumination. And that's the purpose of this question. Jesus said, where is your faith? It is a genuine, it's a gentle rebuke, but it's a genuine rebuke. Where is your faith? Now notice what Jesus did not ask about. Notice, this is important, what he didn't ask. Jesus did not ask, where is your education? He did not ask, where is your training? He did not ask, where is all that experience? He did not ask, where is your resourcefulness? He did not ask, where is your positive thinking? Because this is not an issue of education or training or experience or resourcefulness or positive thinking. This is an issue of faith. Faith. And this issue that has to be confronted. And so he says, where is your faith? He knows the answer. They need to know the answer. Their faith had been swept overboard. Their faith had been overwhelmed by something more powerful than the wind and the waves. What was that? Fear. Their faith had been overwhelmed by fear. And why had they been overwhelmed by fear? Because they had overlooked. They had overlooked something. They had overlooked the master with them and they focused on the disaster around them. That's what swept their faith away. Their focus was not on the master who was with them. But the disaster that seemed to be around them. My friend, you see, the key of faith is focus. It's where you're looking. It's not whether you have storms. It's not whether your faith is going to be challenged. It's not whether you are literally going to be in over your head. It's where are you looking? Where does faith come from? Where does faith come from? Faith does not come from going to church in and of itself. Faith does not come out of a book. Faith doesn't even come out of Bible study ultimately. Where does faith come from? The Bible tells us looking unto Jesus, the author and the completer of our faith. Faith is a result of focusing your attention on a saving God. That's faith. When you lift up your eyes 
weakly, perhaps. In terror, perhaps. But you focus your eyes on your saving God, Jesus Christ. That is the source of faith. My friend, faith is not something you work up. Faith is someone you latch on to. You focus your attention on Jesus. Looking unto Jesus. He's the author. He's the one who creates our faith. And He's the one who will complete our faith. Why? Because He's the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. Now the disciples, they had a question. Boy, did they have a question. Here's their question. Who is this? Do you hear it? Who then is this that the, he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? Notice it says they were afraid. A few moments ago, they were afraid of the storm outside the boat. Now they're afraid of the one who calmed the storm in the boat. Who is this with us? I mean, sure, we've seen him heal some people. Sure, we've seen him turn water into wine. Sure, we've even seen him touch a child and raise a child from the dead. But who is this that commands the wind and the waves? Only one answer to that. You see, friends, what is Jesus doing? He's building their faith. They do have faith. They believe in Him. Friends, but listen, their faith's not finished yet. And your faith isn't either. My faith is a work in progress. Your faith is a work in progress. And our faith is not just something we believe. Listen, church. Your faith is not something that God's just going to allow you to believe. Your faith is going to be something you're going to experience. He wants you to experience your faith. Because you know what? All these men, everybody in this boat, they knew a lot of Bible verses. They knew Psalm 107. But boy, now they've experienced Psalm 107 and who it refers to. What am I talking about? Psalm 107, verse 23. Some went down into the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, Yahweh. They saw the deeds of the Lord, His wondrous works in the deep. For He commanded... And raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves in the sea. They, listen, they mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away. And in their evil plight, they reeled and staggered like drunken men. They were at their wits' end. And all the disciples are saying, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Then what? Verse 28, they cried to the Lord in their trouble. He delivered them from their distress. 
He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. And they were glad. (laughs) Really? They were glad that the waters were quiet. And he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Now, friends, listen. They knew those verses. Those verses were a thousand fifty years old. But knowing the verses was not the same as experiencing the verses and knowing the God of the verses. See, friends, listen carefully. Do you think God is content that you know the Bible? That's not His plan at all. Sure, He wants you to know the Bible, but He wants you to know the God of the Bible. That's the reason He gave the Bible. So that you could know about Him and you could experience Him as He reveals Himself. Our time is gone. I want to give you just these things. You may have time to write them down. You may not. If you don't, they're on the website, on Facebook and YouTube. And I'll even talk to you on the phone about them. (laughs) Some timeless and timely storm forecasts. Timeless. Why is this in the Bible? It's timeless, and it's for the timeliness in our life. Now listen, when I say time, I mean right now. What I'm about to share with you, you need to remember right now, and if you're not in it right now, you're going to be in it soon. So remember this storm forecast. Number one, Jesus is planning for you to experience some storms. He is. 1 Peter 1, 6-7 In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, and the idea, and it is, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith is more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by the fire, This testing may cause your faith to be found to result in praise and glory and honor to your great faith. Is that what your Bible says? It says that you need a new Bible. It's praise and glory and honor to your great God at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, the Lord has a plan for your coming storm. Or maybe the storm you're in. He did not cause the evil. Don't misunderstand this. If your storm is caused by someone else's evil. Or it's a result of your own evil. He's not the author of evil. But God is sovereign over all things. And even in the storm that somebody else caused. Or you brought on yourself. The Lord still has a sovereign purpose. Number two, Jesus is completely in control of your storm. 
Psalm 89, 8 and 9. O Lord of hosts, who is mighty as you are. O Lord, you are faithfulness. It's all around you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Jesus is in control. He's in control of your storms. There is no such thing as a storm in your life that's out of His control. Number three, Jesus is never asleep during your storm. Listen to what I'm about to tell you. Jesus hasn't slept in 2,000 years. His eyes have not closed in sleep since they opened in that tomb on Easter Sunday. He's been wide awake. He never sleeps. He doesn't have to sleep. But there's a reason he never sleeps for us. Psalm 121.1 My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not, what? Slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Jesus is not asleep. He is wide awake. And that means number four is even more precious. Not only is He awake, but Jesus is always with you during your storm. Jesus is in your boat. I don't know where your boat is or where your boat's going, but I'm going to tell you, if you're a Christian, Jesus is in your boat. Why? Because he said in Matthew 28, 20, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Friend, Jesus is not taking a nap. He's awake and he's in your boat. Number five, Jesus is bigger than any of your storms. (laughs) There is no storm as big as Jesus. How do I know that? Colossians 1, 16 and 17. For by Him all things were what? Created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Now does that leave anything out? Everything in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether they are thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, this is spiritual beings, this is hierarchies of spiritual beings who we in our lack of faith believe we have no control on whatsoever. And we don't have control on them, but Jesus Christ does. All things were created through Him and for Him. Think about that. Everything visible and invisible was created by Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. And He's in your boat. Number six, Jesus is leading you to a country where there are no storms. 
You know, some of the sweetest words in the Bible are this. And it came to pass. <laughs> it won't be like this forever. The storms will cease. I love this verse in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no more sea. Now, is that trying to cause us to literally imagine an earth without oceans? No. Might the new earth not have oceans? Perhaps. But the main point here is this. In the new creation, the new heaven, and the new earth, there's no more raging. There's no more anxiety. There's no more ups and downs. There's no more conflict. There's no more hatred. There's no more war. It's all gone. Because the Master, the Prince of Peace, has brought in eternal peace. <laughs> Friend, listen. The storm you're in, as hard as it may be, is just pushing you closer to the peaceful shores where you'll never know another storm. Praise God. I've been living a lot recently in Isaiah. Isaiah 43, and we're going to sing. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are what? Mine. Verse 2. When you what? Pass through waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. The flame will not consume you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Friends, He knows your name. Amen. You are His, purchased and precious. He could never forsake you.